Blog Talk Radio. Oh, that is cool. I got it on the first swipe this time. Anyway, it's Stephen Bray and Keith Kokinda of the Yellow Card Podcast. I want to thank Nick. I want to thank the Happy Hour on Sunday for well interviewing Keith, but giving me. But then I flash mobbed them at the towards the end of the show. Is flash mobbing still a thing? I have no idea. When you say you're not hip or up to date, you got to imagine how far behind I am. So I want to thank them for having us both on. It was originally planned just to have Keith, and when they put out the number, I'm like, I'm screwing with them. That's it. I got to screw them because. I do this. I do this with the NAS and people all the time. I I screw with the um, seeing red people at least once a month. I I tried to get Dave, Dave and Mark Friskin laughing on air, and I think, I think I did it last last night. But anyway, um, there's two reasons why this show is one hour. One, and Keith is just figuring this out, is that what, now that we're into the part of uh, where we're all analyzing and thinking about the sport and thinking that it's grown. I wanted to talk to someone that's actually seen more soccer live than me. It's no secret that I actually have, I can actually read back and read back and look on YouTube and all that and what sports has become. But let's be honest. I, I I could call in anybody that's watched it. My, my thought with all this last, month has been, let's actually talk to someone that has seen it from the very, begin, very beginning in America. Now, not not since Bethlehem still. Keith, Keith is not that damn old. But I, I'm no. saying from what the public consciousness thinks of it is. Also, I do want to spend a couple minutes talking about the buzzsaw we just saw. Because I know we've got people listening on iTunes. Apparently, I want to thank the guys on Sunday for a long Warming me to that one. I didn't even know we were on iTunes. Go find us on iTunes called Yellow Card. We're under podcast, probably under soccer, too. Go to Stitcher. Find us under Yellow Carded Podcast because every single listen you get, every single podcast, if we hit 200 total, Keith is going to do a full hour of Man United talk. And I don't care what type of Man United talk. And I'll be and I've been getting more material for that this week, as a matter of fact. And it, has to, and it doesn't have anything to do. And it doesn't have anything to do with the players. It's what they'll be wearing this season, and the next season, for that matter. Oh yes. Now, I'm not. I'm not saying that during the regular regular EPL season we don't talk about Man United because we do. I do allow. I do allow people to talk about their teams, but I feared I want to give them. The, I want to give the listeners and the show a boost. So if we get 200 total or more, Keith will get Keith will get a full hour. Now, if we get 300, I will put I will pump the show up to an hour and a half and you'll get an you'll get a full hour and a half of Man United talk. Now, I don't know if he can do a full hour and a half, but I'll give him I'll give him on that. So, part of this show today is going to be I'm going to kind of poke and prod and interview Keith about the where the soccer landscape has come 
before, before I forget, before before we go any further, two things I want to mention. Number one, uh, I find it ironic that on the anniversary of the what everybody thought, what a lot of people thought was the UFO crashing in Roswell, New Mexico, really was a weather balloon. That so many conspiracy theorists be out on social media say, "Oh, the referee is going to rig this for Brazil to make sure Brazil get to the final." You know, <laughs> if that were the case then Thiago Silva shouldn't have gotten the yellow card he got in the quarterfinal because that was what caused this. You know, Phil Shane pointed this out, too. You know, not having Thiago Silva was the problem. Germany recognized there was a big hole in the Brazilian back line. Uh, so that, that not Neymar, missing Neymar wouldn't have mattered because there's also, for Neymar to be able to do anything, what did Brazil need to have? He needed the ball, and he didn't have it much in that first half hour. So you know, Neymar wasn't – missing Neymar wasn't the problem. And number two, uh, since, unfortunately, FIFA, for whatever reason, chose not to recognize it today, at least not that I saw, we probably should, uh, with tomorrow being uh, the second semifinal, Argentina to the Netherlands, one of the greatest, arguably – one of the, without question, one of the three greatest footballers Argentina have ever produced, Alfredo Di Stefano, who led Real Madrid to five consecutive European Cups, the first five, passed away yesterday at the age of 88. Uh, it, he's one of those rare players who actually played for two countries. He played for both Argentina as well as Spain after his great career, during his great career uh, at Real Madrid. Um, he had had a heart attack, but battling health issues for some time. In fact, he was not able to attend uh, this season the European Cup final when Real Madrid finally won La Decima, uh, the tenth, uh, their tenth European Cup, which meant they now won as many with and without him as with him. Uh, so we definitely want to mention uh, his passing. Certainly, the uh, yeah, I, obviously I did not see him play, but based on what I've read and seen and said, uh, what others have said. If you were to pick an all-time first 11, you'd have a heck of a time leaving Alfredo Di Stefano out of that side. There is, there's no question. He's up there with uh, Pele, Croy, Bobby Moore, Sir Bobby Charlton, anybody else, anybody else you want to put in that discussion, he certainly belongs there. And, and certainly uh, you, we've heard a lot about Diego Maradona and where he stands in Argentina. And people forget Alfredo Di Stefano came along long before Maradona. Admittedly, Di Stefano largely made his name playing in Europe at Real Madrid. Uh, Argentina were not the world, the national team wasn't the power uh, that they are these days, and certainly Spain wasn't either. Uh, he didn't, you know, he didn't spend as much time playing club football in Argentina as Maradona. And of course, Maradona is an icon at, at Boca Juniors, whereas you, you think of Alfredo Di Stefano club terms. So Real Madrid is the club that comes to mind, not any club of the clubs in Argentina that he played for. So I uh, wanted to make sure we got that one out of the way as well. Yeah, exactly. And I, I don't know if you saw, we had a couple people that are friends of the show, Matt Cox and um, Dan Endo, that were down at the game. But did you see the um, the Orlando City-Tampa Rowdies game? I did not. I've been, I've been meaning to ask about that because I read a, something apparently happened, and I'm not sure what. Apparently, uh, it involved Orlando City supporters, and uh, it was uh, something ugly happened. And, uh, and it, to some people on uh, 
on Twitter even talking about maybe they shouldn't get their MLS franchise after all because of this. So obviously it must have been pretty serious, whatever it was. Basically, basically what they did, and this is back to soccer hooliganism, and I'm I'm trying not to say your your um, Scottish team on this, so I'm going to be real nice. Basically, here's what they did: they were chanting the Mexican slur for not being straight. I'm not. I'm not uh, okay, I know what you're talking about. That's uh, uh, we heard that a lot during. Uh, you hear that a lot yeah. during Mex- uh, Liga MX matches uh, quite often. Unfortunately. Uh, it sounds like it's creeping up here in America as well. If that was the only thing, I would have had no problem with it. The goalkeeper also was tweeting that towards the Tampa Bay Rowdy fans too. But let's get let's get a little bit closer into the game. And our good friend Dan Endo actually has pictures of himself um, holding off the the crew like this. Um, they were. Felt was because Orlando City's got three or four supporter groups down there. Um, they were punching people. They were starting soccer riots down there, and apparently they did they did set something on fire. This was just during a re, this was just during a friendly. This is a Fourth of July friend Fourth of July friendly match because they they play club. Orlando and Orlando and Tampa are real close to each other, so it's not it's like it's real close for them. So they they started this, and um, the great Jonathan Tannewald was um, writing about this, I think, yesterday. I I'd go back on his timeline, but he he, he posts like three thousand tweets a day, so it's not not possible to read it. I would go I would go look at the Ralphie's Mob site, and I think Matt Cox, who we've had on before, would. Let's talk about that. Now, I know they're going to talk about it on the next, on their next show. Now, they do the Unused Substitutes podcast. It's a, it's a Tampa Bay Rowdies podcast, and they talk about other stuff. I think they were talking about women the other day, too, which was kind of weird. But anyway, the fact that all this all creeped into the lower levels gives me one of a couple things. One, the sport has arrived. That you're doing this, and, and that's, you know, that's never good. Yeah, that's never good. Now, as as being someone that's gone to a few games, I haven't gone to a lot. I haven't seen much. Now, I have seen. I have seen. We've traded banter back and forth. That's been kind of weird. I mean, I can't. I can't go to Erie, Pennsylvania, without saying something. But that's because of the rivalry between Buffalo and um, Erie. But when I saw that Saturday, that kind of um, put me in the view of this. Now, with you not knowing as much, I mean, seeing that, that had to kind of disgust you in a way. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Anytime you have, you know, any kind of violence in a sporting event, right, it's not what you want to see. Uh, certainly that kind of chanting or use of those kind, that kind of language is not acceptable in a stadium. Uh, again, as I said, it's a, a Liga MX. Uh, you hear it a lot. Ask Kim Tate. I'm sure she could tell you all kinds of stories. And it it ties in with the Latin American uh, culture uh, regarding masculinity uh, among men and, and that sort of thing. Because I, I remember, in fact, I reading, uh, see the, the 30 for 30 uh, film on ESPN, No Mas, about the second uh, Ray Leonard Roberto Duran fight and how Duran. And again, this is 1980, mind you, a lot, a lot different time back then. I think 
Durant faced a lot of that when he returned to Panama as well. Uh, and so it's, it's, unfortunately it is not uncommon in that culture. I'm not saying it's acceptable. Uh, that's not my point here. The point is this is, this is the reality of, of what it is. And, and again, we've, you know, it's creeping its way obviously into, into our game as well here in the state. And you don't want to see it. And we've talked about it before. You, this is to be in a, at any kind of sporting event or any kind of public performance, whether it be concert, theater. This is a privilege. It's not a right. This is well established in the courts and in law and, and other and, and other areas. <clears throat> you know, it fall. It's in the category of you know, you'll be say the the laws and the court would say you can't walk into a crowded uh, theater or any kind of place and yell fire and induce a panic like that. That's it's, it's simply unacceptable. And, he, and when you buy a ticket for any sporting event, it'll tell you these kinds of things, not just about, you know, warning you about things that might come in scenes, but also about, about a person's conduct as well. And you have to accept those terms to be able to get in. So, no, we don't want to see this sort of thing. Uh, it, it, you know, now, whether or not you could justify taking away the franchise, which, as I said, some people on Twitter were advocating, that I don't know. I see without knowing a lot more about what's going on, uh, I'm not sure uh, that that would be possible. And uh, so I really can't say uh, for certain. But and then, and to tie in with that, what you have to remember, those is that, yeah, I know, the you know, MLS and some clubs have, have gone to great lengths in recent years to try to get rid of the other chant that is used when uh, goal, opposing goalkeepers uh, take uh, take goal kicks. Uh, in fact, I believe uh, FC New Jersey even have offered a financial incentive to their supporters group if they not if they knocked it off. The, the YSA chant I'm referring to, and uh, but you still hear it. You know, I, I still hear it at crew games occasionally, uh, not as much as you used to. But uh, you, we can't have these things in the game. There's, there's no question, and it's. Uh, and you hate, and you, as bad as that was to see it escalate into a violent situation, just just not what we want to see. And hopefully, uh, there's a way that we can that solutions can be reached and actually be taken to try to make sure that this doesn't happen anymore. Exactly. Now, I, I do want to get to the majority part of what this this uh, show is. Now, what what did, you you want, you sat and watched the Germany game, right? No, I have not. I was still working or driving, so I have not. I'm getting, I'm getting ready to watch the replay. Uh, in fact, I joked to uh, to my wife that I will only have to watch the first half hour when to stay up late. So uh, I'm planning exactly. to watch it. But based, based based on what I have been reading, and I said it sounds like the not having Thiago Silva was the big factor in all this. Yeah, and uh, the other the other joke with all this that I've been seeing online is, does Paris Saint Germain want their fifty million back for um, David Luiz? <laughs> yeah, that, that's saw I saw a post of that with uh, Jose Mourinho's picture on it. Uh, Chris Clements also put up a reference to the uh, the, mo- the movie The Boys from Brazil, uh, referencing uh, Odessa, you know, because that ties in with the you know the Nazis during World War Two and how many how many of those people ended up. In South America, which I thought I thought was pretty interesting how smart Chris is <laughs> to put that reference up. But uh, actually, you, you do want to go back and read um, Simon Allen on Twitter right now. Is talking talk about he has huge issues with Pele, like a lot of people do. But Pe- Pele was talking about how 
he put up the whole bit about um, escape to victory. Oh, really? Yeah, well, well yeah. See, here's the difference about the Pele. I thought a couple things. Number one, the, the ESPN soccer stories film about uh, Mane Garincha said something that I thought really was instructive, where uh, Garincha was and is a, a beloved figure. He's loved in that country and always was. Pele is revered, and there is a difference. And uh, you see, you see, I remember there was a Wade Dreyfus of ESPN wrote a great article uh, about Pele and what he's been doing leading up to this World Cup, and he talked about the reactions of people. There was one instance where he, well, a group of Brazilian people, just told him, you're going, we're going to, we want to take you into this room. You're going to meet a famous Brazilian. Didn't tell them who it was, and it was, it, it was as if. It was all I, I. Other than you know, you know, maybe meeting the Pope or somebody of that, it, it could it, it couldn't have gotten a greater reaction uh, from these people. I mean, you have to, you know, as I, as has often been said, there are three people who can't go anywhere on the face of this earth without being recognized. They're Pope Francis, Muhammad Ali, and Pele. And he's, but you know, with Brazil, in the country of Brazil, there's a different view of him. In terms of the, the way, not just and not, not just in a business sense. Cause you see people in America talk about, you know, he'll, you know, he's such a shill. He'll sell out for anybody. The the P company, and I'm not sure you know, how much of the criticism is valid in terms of what he's done commercially. He's done ads for Viagra. I'm like, well, so what? I, you know, I've seen uh, you know, Jimmy Johnson has done ads for for male enhancement products as well. I don't see him getting this kind of heat, but there's this idea that he'll just sell out for anybody. He's got his price, and if you meet it, he'll he'll do whatever you want. Look at what happened at the end of Once in a Lifetime. You know, when they ran the credits and they showed Pele, it said, you know, put up on the screen, declined to be interviewed, accompanied by the sound of a cash register. The implication being he wanted to be paid to be interviewed for the movie. And the stories I've read said it went up to, it was it could have been at least $250,000 he wanted. So, but... Also, in his personal life, you know, he had a he had a daughter who he barely acknowledged in terms of uh, outside of you know, you know not even as much so financial support. He's had another child out of uh, out of wedlock that he has supported, and so you know there's controversy about that in Brazil. And certainly, because of the World Cup being in Brazil, he was seen as a face of the host country. Uh, obviously. You, Pele and Brazil are, are inextricable. You can't think of one without the other. And when you fat throw in what happened last year during the Confederations Cup with the with the protest uh, over the government, what they did as far as the money they spent on the World Cup stadium and things like that. So this, this, the, the, the article was interesting to read that, that, that the, the dichotomy, I guess for lack of a better word, of how you know, on one hand yeah, he's revered for being you know, the greatest the greatest who ever lived, as far as football is concerned, the greatest player was. But there, there's a different. But the viewpoint it is tinted a little bit in the country of Brazil because they see more uh, up close of what he's like. And certainly, uh, in terms of this country here, uh, you know, his coming here to play for the Cosmos certainly changed the landscape of professional sports in this country. Not just soccer, but sports. I mean, kind of, despite what Simon, my, Simon Allen, might try to say. Because I know he doesn't like Pelé uh, personally, and that's fine. He's he's allowed to think that. But, but the fact of the matter is that 
the general public became aware of soccer for the for a, in a large scale way for the very first time when Pele came to the Cosmos, and that changed things. Simon will argue with me, and uh, and we've had this we had this discussion a couple of times, but the simple fact is. That night, what started in 1989 in Porter, uh, Porter, Spain, Trinidad, when Paul Calagiri scored that goal 25 years ago to get us into the World Cup for the first time in 40 years, it started when Pele signed for the Cosmos. That team yeah. was created because of, of Pele coming. In fact, if you go watch once in a lifetime when he came over, uh, Clive Toy, who was president of the Cosmos at the time, had a youth soccer team show up. One of the people on the team was Mike Windischman, who was the captain of that 1990 team. And so it it changed the game. It changed the sporting landscape. Because look where we are now. We're talking talking 40 years, uh, which admittedly in the professional sports realm, it's a pretty decent chunk of time where you compare, you know, the NFL is having its 95th season this year. Uh, the NHL's 100th season is not that far off in the distance. The NBA is like 60-something, right? Uh, almost uh, 60th year is coming in a few years. Major League Baseball, uh, over 125 years, at least on a prof- openly professional level. But to see that, it, but you know, soccer had to go through a lot of things, a lot of leagues, uh, a, lot of, a lot of different changes. But it can, it can all go. What's happening today can ultimately goes back to that one point: Pele coming here, and it's it it, it, it changed the landscape of sports in, in a way that I don't think any athlete other than maybe Wayne Gretzky has done. Because you look at what Wayne, what happened to the NHL after Wayne Gretzky was traded to the Los Angeles Kings. You have two Southern California teams. You have a team in yeah. Texas. You have teams in Florida. You, I always say, to me, you can't compare Michael Jordan with Wayne Gretzky and not just somehow on the field, but impact on the sport. The NBA did not expand the ridiculously outlandish, nobody would have thought of this idea, locations, because of Michael Jordan. And, but Gretzky did. Gretzky is the only one that you can compare in terms of athletes who changed the landscape of their sport in that way. I, obviously, you know, executives have done that. Certainly Lamar Hunt is the first one that comes to mind in that respect with the founding of the American football league. But just as athletes, Gretzky is the only one that really is, is there in that category with Pele in terms of changing the landscape of, of his sport and of the sports world in this country in general. I, I, I think it also did, and, and I, I made no bones about this. Um, follow me on yellow-carded. SCB. I, I'm a history, soccer history writer, and I, I try to write something called something about how the Cosmos changed soccer, and they were really the first super team, but like the first Galacticos. Oh never yeah. Got off ground. I think I, the late yeah, and they the late George Tenalia said that once in a lifetime. He said, you know, back then it was they were 20 years ahead of the Real Madrids and the Manchester Uniteds and the Barcelonas of this world. I actually think they, I actually think there was one that I traded uh, Chase to was um, actually Napoli when um, Maradona got there. That, they, that Maradona yeah. and like uh, that they they had some other top players there and doing that. But uh, that that leads into one of the things I was talking about. 
Now, what is your earliest memory of following soccer in the States? My, it would have to go back to the uh, the old American Soccer League of the Cleveland Cobras, who I mentioned a couple of times before. They played at was at Baldwin Wallace College, now Baldwin Wallace University in Berea. I grew up just a couple miles down the road, and um, I had well, I was I said that was my first live experience. First, first I seen it was watching uh, the German League matches, Soccer League Germany on PBS. And uh, the game intrigued me because even at a young age, I already knew about hockey. And it was, so I was already following hockey at that time. We had the Cleveland Crusaders and the World Hockey Association back then. But I immediately noticed the similarity of the game, uh, the two games. And that made it appealing. I wanted to, you know, so I wanted to see this. So I would watch it, uh, you know, watch it on PBS. And eventually, like in the mid-70s, like 1976, 77, went down the street to see the Cleveland Cobras play for the first time. And there were, uh, obviously, the American Soccer League was not the North American Soccer League by any stretch, especially at that time, because the, at that time, the Cosmos were at their peak. The NASL was expanding. And it was, it was different. You know, you know, Cleveland had a team. Columbus had a team. Uh, the team over in Pennsylvania. Uh, it was certainly, it had been around uh, longer, uh, uh, but it certainly wasn't what the, the NASL was by any stretch, but uh, that was what first got me started. Uh, and then a few years later, when indoor soccer began as a Cleveland Force came to town, that's when I actually started going to games on a more regular basis. Now, you and I have talked about this emails and wise, that, but the covering of the games has changed significantly. I mean, it's changed significantly in my 35 years. Now, I mean, sure. I can I can imagine when you were my age, well, and that, that's actually not far back, actually. But I can't I can't imagine um, actually trying to find games or figure out where the games were because you don't have the internet, you don't have really great media. You only have what at that time? What three or you had four major networks at that time, right? Yeah, that's what it was, and the you know, the local. Uh, you know, you had to rely on um, you know, lo- local sport for I should you got your you get local sports coverage on TV, but for anything national, you had a couple of games here and there. But if you wanted to read about it on a regular basis, you had to go to the newspaper. Actually, you had to go to the newspaper. You know, you certainly uh, and you certainly did have the proliferation of games on television like you do today. You know, baseball was one game per week on Saturday on NBC. Uh, the NFL was, uh, you could see a couple games uh, a week back then. The NBA was not much on TV at all. Neither was the NHL. In fact, the long stretch of the NHL wasn't on at all. Uh, so yeah, you had to rely on the newspaper quite a bit for anything going on outside of your town. And you, you, know, you go through the 70s and, the, and well into the 80s and even the early 90s, the, the media attitude for the most part was, this game, it's you know, a communist game, was a very common thing. Uh, other things were said that referring to uh, your lack of masculinity, I'll say here, for the sake of decorum. Obviously, that's not the word terminology that was used back in those days. Uh, again, different time, different circumstances, different atmosphere. And so the, the, the main, the sports media, and it was a pretty, I guess, insular world, for lack of a better term, it was a lot smaller, number one. You had to talk radio uh, here and there, uh, not what you see today, obviously, certainly not on a 24-7, 365 basis like you have today. But 
there was this attitude of, you know, let's just hammer this for because it's so un-American, uh, even though it's been here uh, going back to Civil War time at least and maybe longer, uh, but it's it was the popularity was let's just bash the sport and ridicule the people who follow up. Maybe they'll just maybe they'll get tired of it and go away. And there and but the the, the sports themselves, I think they have probably were a little bit leery. Uh, if you read Shep Messing's book, uh, The Education of an American Soccer Player, he talked about. Uh, he told a story, and I, I have no idea if it's true or not, but his claim was that the, the then uh, commissioner of baseball in the city of the late Bowie Cude was going to the major media outlets in New York and trying to persuade them don't devote too much time to this. I've read stories where people know was a little bit worried about soccer, and certainly in Texas, um, they... Uh, there was for a long time a newspaper columnist down there. He's now on ESPN, but I won't fit his name because he doesn't deserve it. But he spent a lot of time alternating between bashing the sport and saying this is the ruination of football, it's the ruination of Texas, it's the ruination of the Republic for that matter. He almost said it in those words. And there was a lot of that. And I know even Cleveland in the mid to late 80s, when the sports were still pretty successful, the major of the soccer league was still going, there was a columnist there who was now at the Indianapolis Star, and he openly bashed the sport. You know, even the who could appear right alongside a game story, for that matter. But things changed. And that columnist, who was the Indianapolis Star, now, early in the World Cup, he wrote a surrender column. He said, I admit, I bashed the sport. I, you know, I thought all, a lot of nice fellow media people did it. All the social media people did it. We tried to stop this game from succeeding. We didn't want to succeed. But guess what? We failed. We lost. We lost the, we lost the battle. We lost the fight. It's over with. We, we have soccer is here. It's here to stay. And it's going to be cool about it. And um, it's certainly that, that, that attitude uh, certainly started changing with the 1994 World Cup that I talked about. That was that was another key turning point. It was a big turning point in terms of the media perception because what we've seen since then, and you know this full well because you've been involved that long at least, is it went from bashing the game and bashing the followers and ridiculing everything about it to silence because you know at that time you know, things were changing in terms of communication. Uh, you know, we were just starting to see the growth, the first growth of the internet at that time. Um, you know, the proliferation of email, uh, cell phones, and things of that nature. So social media obviously wasn't what it was back then. But what was happening is people had that were growing, slowly getting a, access to a growing uh, amount of media, as well as the fact that the media itself was growing too in terms of cable channels. Uh, later on websites and things of that nature. So what you had, what you started to get was not only just a, a broader base of soccer fans, but a better educated base of soccer fans. And the media people recognized this and they realized, hey, offending and alienating people might not be the best thing to do. So they, they took the approach that Americans need to take an approach with celebrities. Ignore them and they'll go away. This was the thinking. Now it worked for celebrities, but it didn't work for soccer fans. But that's another argument for another show. So this, this was the end for the lot. So, a large extent, until the last maybe 
maybe 10 years. This is what we saw since 1984. The media, basically, the media, the old school media didn't want and it didn't like the game, simply ignored it. But eventually what happened, a couple of things have happened, especially recently. Number one, and this I heard, going back to the mid to late 70s, I was always hearing this, when these kids were playing soccer, when millions of kids playing soccer grow up, they're going to be, make soccer the number one sport in this country because they're going to buy tickets, they're going to watch games on TV and things like that. Well, until maybe the last 10 years, it didn't happen that way. It, uh, soccer, youth soccer players did not become, uh, I'm sorry for this, but it's the best, the best terminology I can come up with, adults, they did not become adult soccer consumers until maybe 10 years ago. And this has been what's created the sea change we're seeing now in the media because the, the media, as I've said before, the sports media, it's like the entertainment media. They pretty much have to respond to the public demand. They have to cover what the public tells them to cover. You know, everybody wants to know who LeBron James and Carmelo Anthony are going to play for this coming NBA season. Therefore, they're on SportsCenter a lot, okay? Very, very simple. But likewise, a lot of people want to know what's going on with Neymar, what, you know, what's your conclusion doing with the lineup. And, that's, and to me, that was the one. That was the one signal of how dramatically things have changed in terms of the soccer media because you saw when Klinsman decided not to have Landon Donovan on the roster, there was a lot of talk about it on outlets outside of ESPN. Yeah, you expect that ESPN. I covered the World Cup. They have to do this. part of the job. But other outlets were doing this. I heard, uh, and talking about the World Cup itself, well, I was listening to work, CBS Sports Radio in the morning when they have uh, uh, Tiki Barber, Brandon Turney, and Dana Jacobson on. And you know, none of them have any great background in soccer that I'm aware of. But they were talking about the World Cup in a serious vein. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't mocking. They weren't saying, oh, you don't know, and we don't know anything about this. No, they, were, they actually were being sincere. They didn't know a whole lot. But they were being sincere talking about it. Uh, you know, other, you know, the, you see, you see it run. All the sports tickers have it. You follow if you follow the NBC so, uh, soccer feed on Twitter, they've had it up there a lot. And uh, you know, they, they've got MLS and they've got the Premier League, so there's some message, but they're not correct, a direct correlation because they're not covering the World Cup uh, right now. So it's, you know, the the media changed a lot, but it was. It, it was it basically it was in response to to the fans and the soccer fans in this country. The, the number of them kept growing, and on, on a slower basis than maybe a lot of people thought would happen back in the mid 1970s. Uh, certainly, you know a lot of people thought it would be like this by 1990, and it didn't work that way. Uh, but but we but they they grew the the, the fan base grew. People got to be more knowledgeable, more sophisticated. They got access to more of it now, obviously, especially overseas. And because of that, the, the media had to respond in kind. Otherwise, they lose that audience. And this, because the, 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 the youth soccer players finally became adult soccer fans and adult soccer TV watchers and adult soccer ticket purchasers, that's what really brought about the big, the biggest change. But it really, you know, 1994, you can clearly show marked down as, as a demarcation point for that in terms of the, that fan media relate fan slash media relationship. 
Now the the other the other thing you were say, you've been saying in all this, and the, I wanted to peek some of that that's been put with us is that obviously it did change, but I, you and my father talks about this too. Really, the only sci-fi that we would get worldwide was the um, PBS show um, Soccer Made in Germany. Now that's not on anymore, which is kind of sad. Now did that. Did that make it? Did that make more fan? Did that make more fans out of the German league? Because we, we've got a lot of German pockets of of immigrants here in the states. I mean, there's some, sure. I mean, you're in Columbus. Oh, I mean, yeah. there's one called German Village for God's sake. I mean, well, that's where yeah, I was born. Yeah, you, yeah, you got you know, here in, and especially since today, you have very good sized German populations. You in Cleveland for that matter. In fact, my brother and I. My brother texted me about this, say, "Hey, you know, I play, We both played for a German club up in Cleveland uh, back in the mid 1980s, and um, you know, certainly that was probably the first exposure to the European game that anybody here in America ever saw uh, in terms of, of television. Certainly, the you know the, the first division was being shown. Uh, you know, before that, uh, you really had to in terms of." exposure to the game on a worldwide level, you really would have to go back to, to 1966 when the World Cup was shown here for the first time in England because that in turn was what led to the start of the two professional soccer leagues the following year, which eventually merged and became the North American Soccer League. So, but you know, for, for someone of my age, range, you know, the, the, the soccer league in Germany was really the first exposure to uh, you know, any form of European football at all. Uh, you know the Premier League phenomenon is is relatively new. Uh, you know, so I was you know, try you know I because you know first foreign club I cared about was Bayern Munich because you know back then in the mid seventies they were the powerhouse. You know, won three straight European cups at one point. They had Beckenbauer and they had Jean Marie Faf and all the and Gerd Muller and Paul Breitner and all those other great players. You go on and on and on with that list. But you know, that was the first foreign club I ever paid any attention to. And, uh, and of course, later on, it tied in with the, the German club I played for because a lot of those people were from Bavaria and obviously were, were Bayern supporters as well. Uh, yeah, so the, the, the Premier League and La Liga uh, and even Serie A, those were, came along much later in terms of their uh, American awareness of those leagues, uh, although you know, a couple of people point out today on social media, uh, even before today's uh, semifinal, that, hey, if... Premier League is so good. How come most of their players are out of the World Cup now? Uh, it's not the same. It's not and one person who said it's, it's not the best league. It's just the best marketed league. And you, know, you can you can have a whole you can have another hour argument on that one. But oh yeah, easily. You know, certainly, yeah, certainly, certainly, American interest in the Premier League is a relatively new thing uh, in terms of TV exposure. But like I said, obviously, you know, people your age and younger are not going to remember much, if anything about uh, soccer made in Germany on, on public television. And uh, certainly we've been pretty limited the last few years with the Bundesliga because they've been on uh, Gold TV and will be for one more season. Uh, Fox gets them uh, started with the 2015-2016 season. Uh, so they've been a little bit behind in terms of exposure to the state because they haven't been on one of the more accessible uh, cable networks, whereas the Premier League for a long time they were on Fox Sports Channel, uh, and, and a lot you know that was a growing thing, and a lot of people were able to 
get that certainly more than gold TV or being sport, which didn't even come along in America until, what, five years ago? So speaking of same yes, wavelength is me. Hey, Ross. How you doing there, Stephen and uh, and Keith? How are you guys doing? I wanted to give you guys a call, and uh, I I've been itching to talk, you know, talk soccer. It's been a while, so I thought I would give you guys a call. Jump on in. You're always welcome here. You know that. You don't. Have to, you don't have to knock on our door. <laughs> I figured it would be okay. I'm going to be knocking on his door. I'm going to be knocking on his door in about a week. I'm going to be. I'm going to be in. I'm going to be at Fenway next Saturday. Wow, fantastic! Oh, I, I am so envious. Thank you very little. I didn't need to hear that. <laughs> hey, I'm also coming. I'm coming in September to see you too, Keith. Don't get don't get too yes, jealous. I know, but you're. I'm, I'm sorry. I you know it is. I like the level balloon erector center is what it stands for. But let's face it. It's not Fenway, okay? <laughs> you know, I, I so Definitely badly not. want to see a game in Fenway. I'm definitely not texting you those pictures when I get, get there. Oh, no, <laughs> you're not. <laughs> well, what we were talking about, Ross, and I, I, do yep. kind of, I don't know how far back you go in the sport. Obviously, you're, obviously you're a Fulham and New England Revolution fan. I, right. This whole thing with the sport growing, I wanted to pique the interest uh, and actually talk about it really growing. Because obviously I'm a little too young to remember a lot of the sport. And right. I, I, was, I was thinking with having, you having followed the sport before it, it blew up since um, Beckham got here. What is your earliest memories of trying to follow? Wow, that's... Uh... That's a really interesting subject. You know, it's funny because if you're asking me when I first started really getting into it, I would have to go back to to the World Cup here in, in the United States is where it started to take off for me a little bit. But at that point, it didn't have have a stranglehold on me yet because, again, this is before there was uh, the New England Revolution. And then, of course, the Revolution came in and I started watching. But at this point, it was difficult to really get into the sport, you know, again, you know, I heard Keith talking about soccer made in Germany, and I remember, you know, it's funny, I remember watching, watching, uh, like, old, uh, I guess you could say Division One matches in the, uh, in England that were on, like, Channel 2 here, like, you know, that uh, you would get highlights, and I, and I was always fascinated by that. But for me, it really didn't, it didn't take hold, until you know, until we really got into say, um, you know, the year 2000, got to the World Cup in 2002, and that's when I really started thinking about trying to find a team to call my own. And it really took uh, the journey took me a good five years till I really found a team that became my own, and that that turned out to be Fulham. But before that, you know, I tried several teams. Uh, Keith, I don't know if I told you this, but I tried to become a Manchester United fan. And it just didn't take. I, I even tried Chelsea. It just didn't take. But for some reason, when Clint Dempsey decided to go to Fulham, I said, you know what, I'm all in. And uh, because, I, because uh, I've been following Clint's career, obviously, with the revolution, so I'm like, you know what, I'm going to give his new team a chance. And it took, you know. So, so that, that's been my, my journey. And, 
and it's taken off from there because I mean, I mean, my love for the sport really started, I guess you could say, in 2007. I'm talking about you know when it really started to 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 really get into me. You know, was 2007. Exactly. That was the other thing I was going to get to with Keith and you. I'm glad to have both of you on. Is that I got into the sport? Well, I remember. 94 quite well. I remember 98 also. Um, my my getting into the sport, as most of you guys know, is I was tear gassed to the soccer right in Florence in 97. So I kind of, you know, but the really getting into the sport was me was 2005. I just started writing. I started writing, and Keith is going to love this. My first team I ever wrote about on a dedicated site was Birmingham City. Wow. Yeah. I started Birmingham City. Uh, what, um, Russ? Do you know Daryl Grove at all? The name sounds familiar, but but I can't say that I do. Okay, he's um he he's part of Pasted Magazine right now, but he did the old World Cup years ago. This maybe four or five years ago. Tannenwald came off of there. Um, Jonathan, I'm not not Jonathan. Um, Jason Davis, I think had a bit in it. Um. I started writing on that, and I, I never thought—I never thought I'd see the sport expand. I—I I, I never thought Beckham would come over. So that—that's the whole yeah. thing. Now, with Beckham coming over, was that more of a case that we are—we uh, are focused on English as a country? That Beckham came over; he's the pretty face that can—that can do the sport. Is that's why we kind of grabbed that, that we needed that we needed that not next Pele because he's not Pele, no. but that, that next thing to grow the sport. You know what? It's funny because I've seen so much read about Beckham coming over here. You know, was it a was it a success? Was it a failure? And I think overall, it it's going to turn out and we're going to look back twenty years and say it was a huge success because I think it just opened people up that wouldn't normally get into the sport just because of, of the name David Beckham. Say what you I'd want. Say, I'd say it right now. Forget 20 years from now. I'd yeah. say right now it's a success. Grant Wall will give me an argument on that one, but I'd say right now it was, oh. a, it was a success and arguably the best thing MLS has ever done. Absolutely, Keith. And, and, and listen, like you said, Grant Wall would, would probably argue you on that, and that's oh, he fine. He has a right to his opinion, but... But I also know people that, that again, started to get into the sport when they started to hear the word Beckham. You know, I mean, they they knew who this was. And, and again, it, it just opened eyes. You know, it's like, wow, David Beckham is coming over. And it's funny. Do you think, do you think players, players coming over now, like Kaká and, uh, you know, and David Villa come over here without David Beckham? I don't think they do. No. No, absolutely not. I want you to think about that because some of the big names coming over now do not, I do not believe, come over here without Beckham. It it, it starts with David Beckham. Yes, it does. And and it starts on two levels. Number one, as you said, it really really opened the door. I mean, this is why MLS created the the designated player rule. It was called the David Beckham rule at first. And again, a smart thing for MLS to do because they realized. You know, Beckham coming over would bring other people with him, would bring others with him, and the cab. And most, some have worked out, some haven't, and that will continue to be the case. It's not, 
I don't see as being like the old North American Soccer League where these guys are barely able to get out there and play, uh, being able to get their walk on the pitch. Uh, it's not that way uh, for the most part. But but the other thing, with the, from a fan's perspective, uh, it, you know, obviously, no, it was not Pelé. It was a completely different scenario for Pelé. Pelé was just the world's greatest player. David Beckham was one of the biggest celebrities in the world, still is for that matter. That's, it's that celebrity status that got the attention of a lot of people who normally don't pay attention to sports in general. I mean, if you, read, if you, you, know, if you, if you go look up people, whether on social media, or people who follow celebrities a lot, they don't pay a whole lot of attention to sports. They really don't. But this changed that. It drew, it drew a different set of eyes from both the public as well as the media. And that was the big thing with David Beckham. Beckham's effect was on a completely different level from what Pele did. Pele's effect was just on the game itself. With Beckham, it was more about the, the, entire, the entire culture surrounding us, both from a fan's perspective and from a media perspective. And it's, it's something I'm, I'm glad they did, and I'm glad they're try, that he's uh, going to be back in the league as an owner now, assuming he can get a stadium put up someplace. Yeah, and and Keith, listen, you know, while we're talking, I'm just thinking about his impact, and I'll give you another piece of the impact. Look at uh, look at the new team that that's gonna that's gonna happen in uh, New York City. Do you think that Manchester City decide to get in without David Beckham? You know, again, most li- most likely no. It's a few years later, but again, he he opened he opened eyes all over the world, and. Uh, and, uh, you know, again, you know, people in the Barclays Premier League, you know, if you want to go back 10 years ago, probably wouldn't even consider a relationship with, with MLS. You know, now, 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 listen, now they really want to get, you know, get involved with MLS, and, and that's a great thing. It's, it's, it's great to see, you know, again, I'm not a big fan of Manchester City, but I do like the fact that, that they have a stake in MLS. I like the fact that all these players are coming over here to MLS. Now, you know, again, we're not getting them in their prime, but that's not really the point. The point is we're still getting these players to come, which will get more players to come and, uh, and, and change the perception. The perception is changing, and, but I'm oh, telling yeah. you, it, it really, honestly, it all began with Beckham. Well, especially it is. I mean, I, I don't know, did you – I was listening to Soccer Morning this morning. They were talking about Mick Deskaroo, where he, where he has to go now because he's, he's hit away in, in Norway. And Jason Davis yep. and um, Vince from Toronto kind of made this point. It, it kind of aggravated me. Um, Mix is being heavily scouted by Celtic of the SPL. And right. J- Jason made this point loosely that maybe coming to the, maybe coming to the MLS is a better aspect. Think about that. Mix has never played in the States. He's sort of American. That coming <laughs> over here would be better. I mean, that that's saying something right now. It sure is. Listen, Stephen, you know, that's what's funny about all this. I, I've seen speculation about Jermaine Jones as well. You know, it would be great if some of these players came back over here and, uh, and joined MLS – I got to be honest with you. I am not against Americans at a younger age doing the reverse. I'm talking about going over to Europe because you know what? 
I've heard so much talk, well, well, how do we take it to the next level? And I think part of it is, is your best players do need at some point to go over to Europe. And uh, whether that's on loan from MLS or, 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 or to actually really get instilled in some of these academies, you know, I think it's a good thing. But, but I also think that there's a time and place to come, come back to MLS. And I think it's, a, you know, again, it, there's a good mix. You know, you, you could spend your time in Europe, but why not also come back to MLS at some point? And I think it's, you know, again, I'm not against someone like Discaroo coming here. I'm certainly not against Jermaine Jones coming here at 32. I think it's a good thing because the league will grow. But it's twofold because we want to see the U.S. men's national team take, take it up a level. So, so there is a balance here. You want them to play against the best competition, but you also want them to be involved with MLS. How do you do both? I think there's yeah, a way to do it. You just got to find the right balance. Well, you mentioned the key word there was playing, and I think that's the big thing for a player, whether or not an American player decides to go to Europe, is he actually going to play in first-team games. We see the Americans go over there and not really get much of an opportunity. Landon Donovan in Germany and in Everton didn't get a whole lot of chance to play, and that, to me, is what makes the difference. You know, we're going to see with Julian Green now what's going to happen with him with Bayern Munich. Yeah, right. he's only 18. Yeah, he's seen some reserve team time, but that's a But you expect that from an 18-year-old. To get into that first team is not easy. But sure. If a, sure. If for a young and lost player, I would probably be going, to, going over there if they're going to play. But right. if they're not going to play, the key to me is playing. And right, Keith. This Keith. Out, and this, no, Keith, play. listen, I, I completely agree with you, but, but I'll give you, again, another solution to – to go into Europe for, for, for our best young players. And, and I'll give you an example, and it is a Fulham example. Emerson Hyman. Emerson Hyman actually played in the first friendly for Fulham against East Fife in, in Scotland. Now, Emerson Hyman basically really, really has become, I guess you could say, pretty well known with Fulham in their academy in the under-18s. And he's been now at Fulham. This is going on his third season. And the fact that he gets to train with, with Fulham now, now, now actually gets to train with the first team is a tremendous experience for him. And we might see, you know, again, I'm not against players of, you know, of, a, of a certain ability. Go and, go and play in some of these academies. I'm not just saying Fulham. I'm saying, you know, you know some of the best academies in the world are, are in Germany, are in England. Even here in MLS, the academies are getting better. I think that, to me, is, is the key, is to get these players playing, like you said, Keith. They have to be playing. But the academy system is a way to, to get these young players playing. Yeah, that, that's, that's true, too, it, it's, especially for a younger player. Uh, it's just, this kind of ties in with something I talked about before, is we hear so much in this country about how, you know, MLS needs to be involved with player development for the national team. I don't necessarily buy that theory. Do you hear anybody pointing fingers at the Premier League for England's failure in the World Cup? I haven't seen anything. And if, you know, if MLS is responsible for player development for the U.S. national team, where does that leave the Canadian teams? Okay? Are we supposed to help them or not? If we help them, we're helping another country that can beat us in competition, in contest, 
if we say we're supposed to cut him out of the league entirely, cut him out of the program entirely, I don't think that's fly too well. I, and this is something Claudio Reina pointed this out in the New York Post uh, article. The key, the key development period for players is that 10 to 16 year old range, especially Absolutely. when it's developing the basic skills of the game. You know, by the time a player is a professional, even 18, 19, 20 years old, you're near the end of the development period in terms of his actual skill. Obviously, the game, the, you know, playing games is a different matter altogether. But you know, to me, it's you know, club, the club development. They're trying to develop the players for their club. You know, they're, they're running a business here. They're trying to make their club the best they can be. And I know, you know Simon has this idea of oh, you know, the MLS coach should run the academy so they can sell players off and make money. Well, that's all well, that's all well and good, too, if they want to do that. Fine, but still, it is nothing to do with the national team. And, but, and you see this conflict all over the world. The club, there's conflict, whether it be the fixture list of how many players are scheduled for, for international break, or at least the players for the national team. This conflict comes from all over the world. We're no yep. different. The only, the, the, only, uh, the only difference is people have put this difference in place saying, hey, MLS is responsible for player development. Well, I want somebody to go and find somewhere in MLS paperwork, their website or whatever, some kind of contractual obligation to say, yes, they're responsible for player development because I, that's, not, that's not the league's role. The league is a league of clubs. Do you hear anybody saying to the NHL, hey, you're not doing a good enough job developing <laughs> our American players for the Olympic team because we keep losing to Canada. No, right. you don't see no. that. Oh, this will make, this will make you uh, chuckle a little bit, uh, uh, Russ. Uh, according to uh, our friend John uh, Whitesall, uh, yeah. he, is, he is saying on, on Facebook, on Twitter or Facebook, that uh, Philadelphia Union uh, possible new manager, Renee Gillenstein. Oh, my God. Yeah, that's... Yeah. <laughs> wow. I'm not sure how reliable it is. I'm not claiming it. I'm just saying this is what he put up on Facebook and Twitter a little earlier this afternoon. Oh, well, you know what? If that happens... If that... Honestly, I would like to see that happen for for the union and also for, for Renee Mullenstein. How about that? Well, I, I, I tell you this, there are more than a couple, more than three UNLPU supporters who think a cardboard cutout would be an improvement over what they've had this season, well, the last couple well, of seasons. Well, I'm just but, telling yeah. you, if, if that was to happen, uh, the union would start, would start moving up. Uh, I'm, I'm a fan of, of Rennie, okay? I, I believe in him, and uh, if the union made that move, that would be the best move they could make. That's just my opinion. That would, that would be interesting. It would be. It would be, guys. Um, I know we. I know we're limited for time. I just. I just want to share something real quick with you. Um, I don't know if you guys listen to the Guardian podcast at all, but I. But I do. And about a week ago on the Guardian podcast, after the U.S. lost, they said something that that has resonated with me. They're talking about 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 the U.S. performance, and uh, and what they what they were talking about is that they said, you know what. The U.S. doesn't have world-class players. They prove that, 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 that you don't have to have world-class players to have a world-class team. I thought that was pretty cool. It was. Uh, anyway, we're going to be 30 seconds from uh, the end of the show. I want to thank Russ Tolden for having on. He's looking up for having a great discussion about where soccer's gone and where it's going to go. Also, hopefully next week, by the time, we, by the time you hear from us next, 
Well, here, well, here Germany running through Argentina, maybe 14 to 1 or something like that. Anyway, <laughs> this is Stephen Brandt, Russ Goldman, Keith Kokinda. I'll talk to you guys next week.